as uh, you seek to give and contribute uh, to what the Lord's doing in our family of churches. Well, we are continuing our sermon series on the gospel for real life, and so you can be opening your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We'll be in chapter 13 and uh, and chapter 17, actually, both. And in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at how Sunday morning truths affect Monday morning realities. And we're basing this idea of this sermon series on what I think the Scriptures clearly say, that, that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Changes everything about reality. Has, has everything to do with, with reality. And it's the most central truth for all things. So we believe that this good news of Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection, uh, is the good news for all of life. It's in, it's in our mission statement and our motto as well. And this whole series is built on this idea. Abraham Kuyper uh, said it this way. He was a prime minister in Holland. He was a pastor and a theologian. He said this in his uh, somewhat famous statement. He said, There is not a square inch... And the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So the reality of Jesus Christ, who he is, his life, death, and resurrection, the good news, has relevance and dominion over all things. So in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at all sorts of things, all sorts of Monday morning realities, and just thinking about how the gospel, the good news of Christ, connects to those and what I want to do today and then uh, two Sundays following is to talk about how the gospel relates to the idea of culture how the gospel relates to culture so today we'll look at Acts 13 and 17 and 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 just really the goal for today is just to grow in the awareness of this issue of culture and how it relates to the gospel or how the gospel relates to culture next week we'll look at a, a biblical attitude towards culture uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 9. And then the third week after that, Sean will be talking about the application of the gospel to culture. Really, how, do you, how does it work its way out? So, so uh, I want to look at these verses and look at and learn from them. But per, before I do that, I think it's important to cover a definition of culture. Because when I say culture, maybe you're thinking like, you know, going to the opera and, you know, maybe going to the Museum of Fine Arts, reciting poetry, like that's culture. And, and that is a part of culture, but that is really what's, what would be called more properly high culture or being cultured. Uh, but culture itself is way more than just those sort of things. Culture is really the, the, when we speak of culture, it's really the whole system of values and perspectives, institutions and practices of life associated with a, a particular people or group of people. So it's, it's really, it's your views on life and it's how you do life. And so, yeah, talk, it, it addresses what music you like. It addresses you know, what you think about art. But it also addresses your vocabulary, your perspective, your occupation, your vocation, uh, just how you understand your day-to-day existence. That's your culture. And every group of people has certain, a certain culture. And cultures vary quite a bit uh, among peoples. In uh, Papua New Guinea... There's a certain culture. If you visited a remote tribe in uh, Papua New Guinea, you would encounter a culture there. You would encounter certain beliefs, a certain worldview, certain beliefs about life and death and spirituality, certain understanding of truth, the purpose of life. 
You'd, un, you'd encounter how the community on, uh, operates and understands itself, how a family does, how they live day to day, how they dress, how they build their homes, how they eat, how they communicate, how they sing and dance. And perhaps you've seen pictures like this of people in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and this is actually an event they, they get dressed up for. It's called a sing-sing. They come together and, and it's part of their culture. Now, if that, those gentlemen showed up in a remote New England village... Uh, there would be a real contrast in culture there, wouldn't there? What's going on here? But in that remote New England village, there is a certain culture as well. There are beliefs about life and death and purpose and occupation and music and how you dress. And certainly would have a lot in common with this village or whatever village in Papua New Guinea, but there's also a lot of differences. And those differences matter. Those differences are important. Those differences have to do with how we interpret and understand our world. And cultures vary. And there's also, in, in uh, the modern West, not just the West, actually throughout the world, in cities, there's also quite a bit of diversity of culture and change in culture. So what does that have to do with the Bible? What does culture have to do with the Gospel? Why why am I doing this? Why, you know, why am I talking about culture? Is this a, like a, a history or sociology lecture? No, uh, it is that, but it's more than that. Culture has a lot to do with how we understand and apply the gospel and how we bring the gospel to others. It has a lot to do with that. And what I want to do is I want to look at Acts 13 and 17 and, and, and help convince you, if you're not convinced already, of just the reality of the culture. Our understanding, our discernment of culture, of our culture and the culture around us, has a lot to do with how successful we are as Christians. So this series, is the idea is taking Sunday morning truths and applying them to Monday morning realities. What are those Monday morning realities? Those are your culture. That's how you live out life. That's how you understand. That's what you do. So if you don't discern and think about what the culture is, it will be difficult for you, it will be difficult for me to really understand how to live out the Gospel, how to live in light of the Gospel. And we are often so ignorant of our own culture. I've heard someone say that uh, it's like asking a goldfish to describe water. Would you, you know, goldfish, tell me what water is. A goldfish doesn't know anything but water, right? And so it, it can't describe water. We are like that with our culture if, we, if we're not careful. If, if someone were to say, what's your culture? We'd be like, well, it just is. I mean, you're the one who has different culture. We've got the normal thing. It's like accents, right? You hear someone with a different accent, like, you speak funny. And then they say to us, well, you speak funny too. Because there's differences there. We just assume that our way is normal. And, and it's important for us to take time to think about our culture. I hope that makes sense. I, uh, I can illustrate with a lot of things. We'll, we'll look at the scriptures in, in a minute, but before we get there, just one other illustration. Uh, have you heard of a man named Hudson Taylor? Anyone heard of a Hudson Taylor? Hudson Taylor was a man who went as a missionary to China in the day back in the 1800s. When missionaries, when they would go, Western missionaries would go to these other countries, they would set up compounds. They would set up basically a, 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 their own Western village that have often Western-type houses, and people would dress in Western clothing. They would have Western customs. And then they might provide medicine and, and schooling for the, the culture around them. But usually they would invite those people to come into the compound and, and, and receive those good things. And 
to hear the gospel. And that was kind of the strategy that they did. And, and often, actually, sadly, uh, when people would come to Christ, they would have them come into the compound or where they, they would have them adopt Western dress and Western customs. Because I, I think they didn't understand this issue of culture. They didn't get, they were the, the goldfish in the fishbowl. They said, well, what do you mean? This is normal. It's normal to dress this way. It's normal to sip tea in the afternoon and, and so forth. It's normal to, to, to live this way. And so it's, to be a good Christian, you want to live in our world. That was the understanding. Well, Hudson Taylor came into China, and they were having limited success, and he had this insight that he needed to adopt the culture and speak within that culture about the gospel. And so he did something radical in his day. He adopted Chinese dress. He cut his hair, and he grew a queue, which was the style of the day, which is just the hair on the top, a long braid. Uh, he learned the language. He learned the literature. He learned how to write. He learned uh, and enjoyed the food. He uh, learned about Chinese medicine. He, he went outside the compound, actually, and lived among the Chinese people. And from that vantage point, understanding and appreciating that culture brought the gospel to them. And as a result of his ministry, just directly from his own ministry, 18,000 people uh, came to Christ in that culture. They had not seen anything like that. Uh, and, and he and others so affected China that this day there are more Bible-believing Christians in China than in the United States. The, the fruit of Hudson Taylor's ministry and others has had a huge impact. This man understood the culture. He discerned his own culture. He realized, hey, this is my culture. This is, this is my view of things, and they have a different view. And so I need to enter into that culture, be able to live in that culture, appreciate the good, and bring the best, the gospel, to them in their own context. Well, our two sermons that I'm going to read today are from the book of Acts. And, and we could go elsewhere in Scripture uh, to look at this idea of culture. Uh, but there are two sermons I'm going to read from the book of Acts. One is from Acts chapter 13. Paul goes to the city called Antioch in the region of Pisidia. And he goes to the city. It's a fairly large city. It has an established synagogue. So the synagogue was the meeting place of, of the Jewish people, and not just Jewish people, but people who were non-Jewish, who were what, what we would call Gentiles or Greeks, who had become attracted to the Jewish faith. And so they would come, but they had not, many, most of them had not become full Jews. These people knew their Bible. They knew the Old Testament. They knew their story. And they were a certain culture in Antioch of Pisidia. So Paul comes in and preaches the gospel to them. What I want you to do when, when I read this is to, is to listen to that gospel message. And I want you to think of a few things. I want you to think about how Paul first identifies with the culture and enters into their story. He identifies with the culture and he brings the truth of God into their storyline. And then how Paul brings the gospel, the good news of Christ, and then what he calls for, uh, what sort, how he calls for their response to that. Then I'm going to read a sermon from another place in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, where Paul goes to Athens. In Athens, there were virtually, if any, uh, there were virtually no Jewish people. Uh, it was mostly Greek people who were, who were schooled in, a, in Greek philosophy and a Greek way of thinking, uh, actually somewhat similar to our culture, but different in many ways as well. And he goes there, and I want you to, as I read that, I want you to listen. And I want you to do the same thing. First, listen to how Paul enters into their storyline how he identifies with the storyline, and how he brings God's truth to that storyline. And then how Paul brings the gospel 
and then the response that he brings. I want you to see Paul in action because Paul, I believe, is the, is the missionary par excellence. He's, he's the missionary who gives us a pattern of how to live. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not a missionary, am I? I I'm not going anywhere. God's called me here. No, you are a missionary. Every Christian is a missionary. Uh, to belong to Jesus is to be a missionary. He was sent from the Father, and he so sends us wherever we might be. And your mission field might be just your neighborhood in here, or God might use you overseas. Regardless, to follow Jesus is to be sent on mission. And so let's learn from Paul, and let's learn to be like Paul, and thus to be like Christ as we look at the Scriptures and as we talk about these things. But let's pray, because we could do our best to learn and to listen, but without the power of the Holy Spirit and God speaking to us, it's all for naught. So let's seek him. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the good news of Christ and how it has come to us and our culture and changed us. And we thank you, Lord, that your good news is changing us and making us missionaries to those around us. We want to learn. I pray, Lord, you'd help me to serve your people. Help me in this message that's slightly different than a normal message to, to do a good job of serving your people. And Lord, my prayer is that you would make us, as individuals and as a church, like Hudson Taylor, that, that you would produce fruit in our lives to reach this area, to draw people to you, and to see them transformed, and even culture transformed, by your glorious gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can open up to Acts 13 or follow along on the screen. We're going to start in verse 16 and read through verse 42. This first sermon is Paul's sermon to people in Antioch of Pisidia. These are largely Jewish people or uh, Bible-educated Gentiles. And it says in verse 16, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And they found in him 
no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers that he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. God's word from Acts chapter 13. What a wonderful sermon about the gospel. But what a wonderful sermon that is geared especially for people who knew their Bibles, who knew their Old Testament, and who are actually the very historic people of God is, and, and those that were Greeks and educated in these things. It's geared for them. And so remember, notice how Paul brings, identifies with their storyline, brings the truth of God, brings the truth of Christ, and calls them to response. Now let's go to a totally different situation in Athens, Acts chapter 17. A totally different people, a different background. They are not Jewish people. They do not know the Old Testament. They do not have this common experience of being the covenantal people of God in the Old Testament. They are Greeks and they are Gentiles, non-Jews. But they have a storyline as well. They have ideas and interpretations of existence and reality. They have values and perspectives. And Paul wants to bring them the good news of Christ. So he enters into their world identifies with their world, he identifies with the good, and speaks to that with the truth of God, brings the gospel, calls for response. Listen to God's word in Acts chapter 17 as Paul preaches in Athens on this hill called the Areopagus. It says in verse 22 of chapter 17, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human Hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone and an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. God's word, Acts chapter 17. Two very different sermons, right? What, what, uh, what were some of the differences between the two sermons in terms of the storyline of the people? You can shout out anything if you have an idea. Jeannie? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. So there was this history of not knowing who is God. What's reality? And where the Jews knew, they had this revelation of, of their experience and God's word to them. So, good. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's a good point. Paul could have come into Athens and said, you guys are just so, such a, an awful, dissolute culture. You need to get your act together. Let me, let me just teach you the Old Testament and go into the whole story. And that, and that wouldn't have been necessarily a bad thing to teach the Old Testament, but, but so first you need to just get your act together and start doing the right things. And then after a while, once we get things right, then I'll start telling you about more of the story. I mean, he could have had a very different attitude, but instead of that, uh, he entered into their world. And he, like you said, Gene, very good. He recognized the good and the true, and he accented that. He actually recognized the untrue, but the, but the legitimate search that they had for truth. So he identifies with that. He grabs a hold of that, and then he helps them Bring them from that point to the truth. So, good. Any, any other ideas of differences? Excellent point. Excellent point. So, with the Athenians, to, to use Scripture quotes, he uses extensively in Antioch, doesn't he? He quotes from a number of Psalms, and he gives them a whole review of the history of the Old Testament. So, it's steeped in the Scriptures. And they were a people in Antioch as Jews who, who were steeped in the Scriptures. That was how they lived their lives. They knew the, they knew the Bible. Actually, uh, many people would have memorized the whole Old Testament. That was common in that day. So he's, he's quoting, and that's making a connection to them. He goes to Athens. They don't know the Bible, and so he doesn't use the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Now, he does use Bible truth. He talks about Christ being raised from the dead. Good. Any other ideas? Any other differences that you would observe? Yes, excellent, yes. That's right, good, that's a good point. So he quotes their own culture, uh, so, you know, he affirms those things, and then, he, and then he, he changes, he nuances it, he brings truth, good. What were some of the things that were in common between the two? Dark. Mm-hmm. 
Good. Good. Yeah. So identifies the good and the true in both cases. Good. Anything else? Any other things in common? That's right. Good. And, and so what does he do with that? Do you notice how that's a good point? So they, are, they make idols, and they see God living in temples. And so Paul identifies that, but he doesn't affirm that, does he? But he helps them think through how it doesn't make any sense in their own terms. It's a, actually a wonderful argument from logic of why this makes no sense. Why are you wasting your time on, on idols and temples? If you think God is these things, and then he doesn't need men. He, and, and if God is this way, he, he's, not a, he's not, you know, gold or silver. He's, he's like us. He's a being. He's alive. So, excellent point, Jeannie. Right. Yep. That's right. Yep. So, he identifies. So, this, I mean, just these are all really great things. And we could... I thought about this message today. I'm like, I could take hours. We could just talk through a lot of this. And, and my goal today is just simply just raise our awareness for the purpose of thinking about not Athens or Antioch, but Haverhill, Merrimack Valley, Boston, things like that, and, and discerning our own culture. Um, so uh, so that's, that's the idea. But he, what he does is, is he, um, he, he identifies with what's good, he brings, he challenges things, he brings direction, and, he, and he's not afraid to bring the gospel and all of its controversy. So uh, the Greeks, the idea of a resurrected body was foreign. They, their idea of heaven was this, this ethereal place where there's just spirits because they considered the earth and the body to be inherently evil. And so, so that was contrary to their culture, but he had t- taken time to identify with them and connect with them on their truths and their own longings to understand their life and spirituality. He identifies with that, and he connects there, and then he challenges. So he, so he doesn't just give in to the culture, but he doesn't just simply challenge. And he does that both places, doesn't he? He brings the controversial gospel. No matter what culture you're in, the gospel is controversial. We as, as humans don't like the gospel. Every culture is going to have that in common. Every culture is going to have an opposition to this idea that, that only in Christ do we have salvation. Only in Christ can there be righteousness. That we are not righteous in and of ourselves. We cannot make ourselves worthy of God, and we are lost in and of ourselves. We're, every culture, we're not going to like that because every culture strives to invent their own way to feel worthy and own, or their own way to get to heaven. And the gospel, the truth, comes against all cultures and says, no, on your own, you're in trouble. But God in his mercy and in his love has sent his son. The son has been sent to come down to us and to, to dwell with us, to dwell in our culture. And to, to point us to salvation, to, to live a righteous life himself, then offer up that righteousness on the cross, to bear our sins, to pay the just penalty for our sin before a holy God, to whom we all owe our allegiance and our worship. He sent his son to die, and then raised him from the dead on the third day to say that his death is satisfied the Father. And now for all peoples in every nation, no matter what culture you are from or are in, you are offered this salvation in Christ, new life, forgiveness, acceptance to God, and now through that gospel, a new way of living in your culture. That's part of it as well. So we not only discern the culture for the purpose of reaching it, 
but also for learning how to live out the gospel in that culture. And that will look slightly different in different cultures as we learn to apply the truths where we live. And that is our go- the goal uh, as we go through this mini-series, is to think this way and to think about our culture a little bit. So great, great discussion, guys. That's very helpful. And, and I would encourage you to return back and think through some more what you see, that these things that are different, these things that are in common. What I want to do is just to think about with you a little bit about our culture. Because I want to avoid making the mistake of bringing a message meant for Antioch to Athens or a message meant for Athens to Antioch. And I would submit to you that, that me personally and the church, perhaps us, I think to some degree us as a church, and the church in America right now is in a time of culture shift that's going on. And I believe we have made mistakes or making mistakes of bringing an Antioch message to Athens. I want us to think about that and learn how to bring the gospel to this shifting and changing culture. So I just want to review a little bit about our culture, uh, bring, you, bring you in on some of my thoughts. Uh, they're not just my thoughts. Uh, I've read a good amount, and I'm reading a good amount on this, and I could point you to some other resources, but just to think a little bit about our culture. Something has gone on in the past 50 years, actually the past 100 years or so, in the United States that is shifting our culture quite a bit. Uh, up until the beginning of the 20th century, Christianity was the dominant worldview in, in our society, in, in America. Now, it was not the only one. It's never been the only one. Uh, but it was the dominant one. It was, it was the worldview that, that drove how people thought about themselves, how they thought about different things like the arts, how they thought about institutions. It was dominant in every way. Uh, and it was most influential. What happened is, all along, there had been, a, had been many alternate worldviews, but there was one dominant worldview that, that we could call an enlightenment worldview or a or humanistic worldview, or sometimes I think the most descriptive is a secular humanistic worldview. And a secular humanistic worldview is that basically that if we want to know truth, we as humans need to determine that. We determine truth together. Uh, we can find it on our own using philosophy, using science. We can determine ultimate truths. And if, you can't, if we can't do it on our own in a clear way, it's not quite truth. So the secular humanism would look at issues of faith and people of faith and say, hey, that's okay for you, and that, you know, that creates some good things, but that, you know, that's, that's your private thing because, because you can't really prove it with science. You can't really prove it with, these, with philosophy, perhaps. You know, that, that's your private thing. So if we're going to live together, we need to, we need to tolerate each other and just not talk about these other worldviews, basically to have a secular humanistic worldview. That's that perspective, and you may recognize that that's really now a dominant perspective in our country. Now, I could take a lot of time to talk about that, and I think we as Christians need to understand that, that, that we live in a society that's basically saying that is an su- intellectually superior worldview. And Christians often feel like, you know, to be a Christian is to, to kind of leave my brain at the door. And I, I think that's totally untrue. Matter of fact, I think it's the other way around. Uh, and just briefly to, to tell you why I think that's true, every worldview always has assumptions of faith. We always have to assume something in order to discover what's true, in order to determine what's true. And so for the Christian, we assume the existence of God and the revelation of God. We assume that God is able to communicate to us adequately the key truths we need to know. That's the groundwork of how we know what's true as as Christians. We assume God is able to communicate to us what is sufficient to know about truth. That's the word of God. That's our assumption. That's a bold assumption. Uh, I think it's the most reasonable assumption. A, a humanist, a secular humanist, assumes that mankind is somehow able to determine 
the ultimate truths that we need to know. All right, that's their basic assumption. Either one is an assumption that's based on faith. We have to, by faith, take that either God is able to reveal to us key truths or mankind's able to discern it. Now, I think the, the weight of evidence against mankind's ability versus God's ability is quite, is quite overwhelming to say that this is a lot better place to put your hope. Because, if, if, and you may not be into philosophy, but if you think through where that humanism has gone, it ends up with this. All I have is I, th- I think, therefore I am. That's the, the basis of it. And, and I think there's something going on. All I, all I know is that there's something going on. I'm not even, not even sure if it's thinking, and I'm not even sure who I am. But I know something's going on. That's the only basis they have. And from that point, they have to somehow determine what's true. Um, so I think that's a ridiculous faith assumption. But it is a faith assumption. So don't let anyone tell you that you guys are into faith. You're making a leap of faith, and we're not. No, you're not making a leap of faith. And this one's a lot better bet. Uh, so just a little bit about the predominant worldviews. This, what has happened in our society, that the humanistic enlightenment worldview has been there for quite a while. Uh, can even trace it back to the Greeks. And then the Christian worldview has been there. And around the turn of the century, what happened was there was a major shift in the dominance of those worldviews. And, and, and it's a long story to try to describe or even understand what went on, but it, nevertheless, this shift happened. So that after the turn of the century, those who were in power, those who were professors and provosts at universities, those who were in the halls of power, those who had dominance on media and art and so forth, uh, largely shifted from Christians or those with a a very Christian worldview to those with a humanistic worldview. That shift took place around the turn of the century. Uh, And there were some events that went on early part of the 20th century, the Scopes trial, if you know that, that really pushed that in uh, that direction quite a bit. The Christians in our country largely, not entirely, but largely responded by retreating from the culture. Okay? Go ahead. Take Harvard University. Go ahead. Take the, take the Supreme Court. Go ahead. We're just going to retreat, and we're going to be these, a holy people. We're going to be a holy people who evangelize, who go out and bring the gospel to people, and hopefully we bring them in. We circle the wagons, though, because we've got to protect ourselves. That, that perspective has persisted to a great degree. Now, there's been some changes in it, so nuances. There's been the idea that, that not only are we going to go out with the gospel, but we're going to go out into politics, or we're going to go out into this or that institution. There's, and there's different things in that that are good. But by and large, it has retreat from the culture, survive, and, and kind of just try to have these areas of influence. Now, if you study the history of the 20th century, there was a degree of resurgence of Christian values in the 40s and 50s. And in the 50s culture, uh, it, that shift had already taken place, but, but Christians were a dominant force. And there was a culture kind of that w- went along with that 50s culture. Um, at the time, actually, uh, Christianity was still dominant enough in the thinking of our country that if you went up to somebody on the street and you said, you know, tell me about God, they could actually tell you quite a bit about God. Whether they believed in God or not, whether they were Bible-believing Christians or not, they could tell you about who God is. He's, he's holy. He's powerful. He made all things. They could tell you about sin and evil. They could talk about good and evil. They could, they could probably share many of the same values on economics and ethics that Bible-believing Christians did, yet they were not Bible-believing Christians. So the culture was still very influenced by Christianity. And at that point in time, this is what the church did. We were in this culture that was largely Christianized and also had a high appreciation for the local church. 
To be a good person, you went to church. And if you look at the stats from the 50s, it, uh, 75% of Americans at that time said that religion was an important part of their lives. And, and majority, the, the solid majority, went to church regularly. And so the way the church reached the culture that time, you just, you just lived in the culture, you had a good church, and you look for opportunities to tell people about the gospel. But you didn't have to spend time getting into the basics. They already knew the basics. And so you were a good witness in the, church, in the community as a church, even just your building, and that was a big thing in that. And you look for opportunities to, to, to touch people's lives. So a famous track from that time period and following is the Four Spiritual Laws. Anyone ever who's old enough ever use the Four Spiritual Laws? Works great for people who already understand most of the gospel and the, the things of God. And it basically says, you know, that God is holier than you think he is. You are more sinful than you think you are. And his love is greater than you know it to be in, in Christ, in the gospel. That works great. But take the four spiritual laws to somebody today and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for their, your life. They'll say, oh, yeah, he does. But, but the, the, the plan they have in mind is totally different than the biblical plan. There's a difference in our culture. The, the, the reason I bring all this up is just so we would understand that this is the background and I would submit to you that it is, by and large, the assumption of the 21st century American church, that we still live in the 1950s, and we don't. It isn't the 1950s anymore. There is a huge shift going on in our culture. 75% of, Christians, of Americans said religion was important, very important to them in 1952. In 2010, the survey came out on that question, and in New England, the number was about 40-something, 40 40% 40 or so. Uh, said that, agreed, and that was the lowest in the nation. Um, there's been changes all around in, in views. Church attendance has gone from, for, uh, for young people in particular, the, the biggest shifts are with our young people, with our millennials, with our 20-somethings. Uh, back in the 50s, I think the number was 51% or higher were regular church attenders. Now the number is 33%. I think it's even lower than that. I think it's half of that because whenever you ask people, do you go attend church? I mean, what are they going to say? They're going to say yes, even if they only go like once or twice a year. So the number is actually lower. So church attendance is way down. The values have shifted dramatically. This is one way this is shown is in the view on, on uh, living together before marriage. Uh, back in the day, back in the 50s, it, it was a very rare occurrence. Um, back in 1960, there were 450,000 unmarried couples living together. Now the number is 7.5 million couples. It's estimated that up to 90% of 20-somethings will have cohabitated, lived together before getting married. 90% of young people will have lived together before getting married. That's a shift in that value. Where before that didn't happen, now it's very common. Very common in, in our culture. And, and we could look at others. There's, there's been a massive shift. And, and I believe that, generally speaking, the Christian church has not adapted to that. So we are bringing an Antioch message to Athenians. And the strategy in many churches is to be a good church in your community and be welcoming so they can come in the door and you'll reach people. And, that, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a part of a, a good strategy, but in our culture, it doesn't work anymore. We need to learn to be like Paul, to engage the culture, to understand who we're talking to and how they think and what their values are and the questions they have about life, their storyline, and the, the points of where they wonder, what's the purpose of life? And we need to engage them. Sure, we need to 
to have a great Sunday worship, and that's going to continue to be a very important part of our, of our reaching this area, but we need to go out from this place to reach out and to touch lives and learn to be missionaries, learn to reach people, learn to engage them, learn to touch their lives and to not spend our time pining for the good old days. There's a degree of, of this bemoaning the cultural change and, and longing for the good old days. It does no good. And I don't know how good the good old days were, by the way. There's a lot of things that were not good that need to be changed. And, and, and to some degree, the culture wars that we see in our country are, are, are coming from this vantage point. Um, some of the ways that, that people are looking to combat this shift is more about conserving what they had in the past versus moving forward into greater biblical truth. Now, I'm not trying to discourage you from engaging on, in the different ways that have gone on in the culture wars. Matter of fact, I think we need more. I think it needs to be multifaceted. But I think we need to say something more to the culture about some of these areas than we have been saying. We need to present to them a, a, a view of the Christian life, a view of the fruit of the gospel that touches every aspect of life. And I could, I could pick on any, any Christian's views in politics. I could pick on my own views and, and just show how, how we're not thinking Christian enough. Um, I think about the conservatism that is the impulse of many Christians, and, and there's good things in that conservatism. But I, but I also think the other side of it is, is are we really presenting to the world a... So, so we may think federal government should not be large, okay? You may have that view. I know our, our church represents... Democrats and Republicans, but, but maybe for you, 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 your convictions are a big federal government leads to problems, and there's good reasons to think that. Uh, you may have that view, realizing historically a big federal government means they come in and they change your religious freedoms. I mean, so we don't want a big one. But are you thinking and working towards social justice as well? Are you presenting a way to address the woes of our society, not just through a smaller federal government, but, for, but through a more active church or a more active community touching the poor and educating people? Are you thinking that way? I, I don't know if we've done a good job about that, and I, I put myself in that category as well. Now, I'm, I'm not hoping to work out all these issues today <laughs> or anytime soon. And I really just want to raise our awareness. I just, if I could just simply do one thing today, I'll be very happy. Just to realize, you know what, we're fish in a fishbowl and there's water around us. And let's just think about it. And let's just learn to think like Hudson Taylor. Let's not go into the culture wearing Western garb and then inviting people into our compound, thinking that somehow we will have reached them for Christ if we can do that, and trying to make them like somebody perhaps from the 1950s or whatever it might be. Let's think about this. Let's think about our own lives. Let's think about these things. And, and, I, and, I, and as I think through these things, and I... I I know I'm speaking generally, and it may sound negative, and it is in some ways. I think we need to bring, I need to bring correction, but I'm also thinking of my own life. I'm thinking about how I operate on these assumptions, how I think it's, just, it's enough just to be a, a, a healthy church and then somehow hope that our community discovers us. It's enough just to be a, a good guy without engaging my neighbors. It's enough to, you know, to pay taxes but not... I don't, you know, not getting involved in social justice in my community. I look at my own life and recognize that I am not doing what I ought to be doing. And I don't think we are either. And I think, guys, that, that there's a lot at stake in all this.
if we don't learn to do this, we will cease to exist. Now, don't get me wrong. God's sovereign. He's got a gospel plan. But his plan is probably, in part, to stir us up, to realize that if we don't do something, we will cease to exist. And, and I'm not being dramatic. New England is at the forefront of the cultural shift in our country. And if you want to know what we're going to look like 10 or 20 years from now, just look over to Britain and what's going on and going on over there. This is a country at one point where Christians were a thriving and central part of their culture. And from that country, missionaries went out everywhere. They, they basically are the ones that drove the world missionary movement. From, their, from them came the Puritans. From them came the Great Awakening. And to be a Bible-believing Christian right now in Britain, you are like a dinosaur. You are just something that's, oh, that's interesting, quaint and backwards. That's what, that's what Christians are seeing. The churches are struggling there. And if they don't do something, they will cease to exist. Now, there is stuff going on. I can tell you stories about churches in Great Britain who understand this and who are discerning the culture, who are being like Paul, going to Athens versus Antioch and thinking through, what does it mean for the gospel to change my life? What does it mean for me to bring the gospel to my community? What does it look like to live in light of the gospel? And they are presenting vibrant Christian models and are are seeking to think of how the gospel changes all of life and presenting that to the community. There's lots of good stuff going on. But if they don't do something about it, if we don't, we will cease to exist. And I say that as a warning and an encouragement. And I say it knowing that there's a lot of good going on. If the bank could come up as we prepare to close... There's a lot good going on in the United States. There's a lot of churches who are recognizing this issue of the gospel and culture. And they're thinking through it. And they're learning to be churches on mission. A lot of these churches use the word missional. I I don't really carry one way or the other on the use of that word. But they use this word missional because they are coming to an understanding that they're not just people that do mission. It's not just like we're, here, we're the church and we'll send out a little, you know, a little uh, squad to go do mission, and then they come back and we just, you know, we huddle back. No, they, they, they use the word missional to say that to be the people of God is to be by nature missionaries in all that we do. And there's many churches who are catching on to this, this viewpoint. I'm excited, and our church, I think, we are catching on to it as well. And there are churches in New England. Uh, back in October, Uh, hundreds of of pastors came together in the Gospel Coalition New England Conference. And I would say, by and large, these these pastors represent churches who understand these things and are seeking to live them out. There are churches, at least a half a dozen, I'd say, in Haverhill, who are hungry to learn how to do this. And there's great stuff going on here as a church. It's wonderful to see you guys as you are getting this, and you are. And you, you guys, many of you, are leading the way and loving your neighbors and reaching out and learning as small groups to come around each other and pray for reaching out to the lost around you and doing things together. We are learning as a church to interact as part of the community. We have lots of community organizations come in and use our building. We see ourselves as, as, as being here for the community. We're building relationships. We're doing stuff, feeding the homeless and other things here. So I'm very excited about that. I don't want you to be discouraged in any way. But I do want you just to think, Lord, what do I need to do? And maybe we could just take a minute as we close and you can just go before the Lord and just pray. And maybe just pray something like this, this simple, Lord, make me like Hudson Taylor. Make us like Hudson Taylor. Use us in this area. Make us like Paul. And God will be very glad to answer those sort of prayers. Let's go before him in prayer.
individually, and then we'll close in worship.